Welcome to Find the Magic, the podcast that will help you honor yourself, your kids, and your partner. We'll give you tips and strategies to create peace and authenticity within your family. We inhale a ridiculous amount of books and life tools and distill the information for you. I'm Terilyn Griffin. I'm Caitlin Gabriel. And I'm Felicia Allen. Let's find the magic together. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, just a quick reminder to use code FINDTHEMAGIC to receive $50 off any Gab wireless device, watches, phones. Let's keep our kids safe on tech as they go back to school, but also safe and aware of where they are. So again, that's Gab Wireless with code FINDTHEMAGIC. You can receive $50 off any device. Hey everybody, it's Felicia. Um, I'm going to start us off with a facepalm. <laughs> I couldn't for a second remember if it was a high five or a facepalm, and then I saw my reminder of what it is, and definitely a facepalm. So last night, I had a scary nightmare dream, Oh. and I almost, I rarely remember my dreams, almost never. Um, I think I'm just so tired. I just black out for eight hours. (laughs) No dreaming. Just kidding. I know we all dream. I just don't remember my dreams. So I was really frustrated that a dream I remembered wasn't, it was a bad nightmare, but, um, so my nightmare was that I went to get my four-year-old from his preschool and he wasn't there. Oh. This is like a parent's worst, worst, worst nightmare ever. And I was like, okay, did someone else pick him up? I'm like, did I forget that I'm like calling people, can't find him. And it was a very detailed dream, elaborate thing of like where he ended up being. And I don't even know if I want to tell you guys the full nightmare, but there was mom rage I took out on some people that I found out took him and I like I woke up and I was like whoa like it actually gave me a little confidence like if anything bad did happen that I could really handle it but it was so scary have you guys had a nightmare like that where your kids are missing um I've had nightmares where they die and they're awful yeah definitely like similar feelings of like yeah fear panic yeah, all of those things. I can't oh. think of a specific one, but yeah, they're yeah, definitely. It was horrible. 
I actually like kind of woke up and went back to sleep because I had to finish and get to where I find him. Like I was like, there has to be a result in this nightmare. <laughs> That's amazing. You went back. So you went back to it. You went back to the same dream. Yeah. I went back to the same dream. Wow. That's actually brave because I feel like usually if I wake up from a dream, no matter what point it's in, if it's a bad one, I'm like, no, I do not want a part of that again. No, thank you. Yeah. I had, as you fell asleep was like, go back and you did. I had to, I had to know. (laughs) That's good though, that you did feel like a sense of some confidence. I've had that before in dream, not necessarily in that situation. That not that, like not that kind of dream, but I have had it where it was like a horrible dream. And then almost when I woke up, I was like, I'm act- I don't know. It almost was like, I, I feel okay about that because it, it did somehow like resolve in my yeah. mind, Yeah. even though it was a bad dream. Like I didn't like it. And so it's I'm confusing. The resolve is never clean. Like it's confusing in a dream, like right. how it resolves. But yeah, it, I did not like it. I was like, this is terrible. Maybe I'm good not remembering my dreams. Yeah, that's intense. <laughs> I've done it before where I... I'm usually awake still, though. I don't know if I've gone back to sleep to do it, but like I'll finish it. But it's while I'm awake, like I'll be laying there and be like, "Okay, it needs to end." Or I'm gonna go back and like redo that in my brain. I gotta like, yeah, (laughs) change in my brain, like I do for books. Like when I finish a book and I don't like the ending, or they don't give enough information, oh, I I have to do that. Like I have to like sit down with myself and like let me just finish this how I want it. Or if I'm really mad about what an author did at the end, I really will like sit there and be like, I'm just going to make up my own ending for my own brain, for yeah. myself. I'm making up an ending. And I'm just going to go with that one. Because, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I like it. That's funny. Okay. Well, I'm sorry, Felicia, that, having nightm- that you had a nightmare. That's awful. Thank you. It's so scary. And yes. I'm glad that it that Sunny is safe in real life. And okay, mine is a high five and it's for the concept of synchronicity. So I looked up the definition of synchronicity to make sure that I'm actually like sharing it correctly with you guys. Because it's one of those words, I mean, I've been using for decades, but I don't think I've ever actually looked it up. It's the simultaneous occurrence of events which appear significantly related but have no discernible causal connection. So where things just kind of like line up and I feel like when you're looking for synchronicity, it's happening all the time. Like I cannot tell you guys um, how many times with books, just books alone, literally somebody will tell me about a book. It's actually usually how I know I need to read that book next because <laughs> I'll have not heard of a book. And then within a week, I'll have three separate random people tell me about this book. You know what I mean? Like for me, it's always like, a, oh, book, you're next in line, the universe. You know what I mean? Like here you are. They like... So I always tell people like books like line themselves up for me. Like that's just one example of synchronicity in my life. I just, um, but recently over the past, maybe six months, it's been IFS internal family systems that has lined itself. Um, there's been a couple books. I think Felicia, you're the one who requested this book, but it lined up along the same time where I have been working with somebody, uh, somebody close to me and IFS. And it was one of those like, and then I've also heard several people tell me about, Oh, I've done IFS. It's a healing a healing modality, and it's like, oh my gosh, how is it that literally five different ways this healing modality has come into my life through? And they're yeah, like unrelated people, but it just has lined itself up. And so I've kind of deep dived into internal family systems that that entire healing modality, which is, I would love maybe in the future for us to do a episode on it. But the premise is that. 
there's no bad parts of us that all our soul is whole and then we have all these parts that some some of them wreak havoc and it's just a matter of identifying them and having compassion on them it's kind of what we do with emotions but with parts of us as well anyway it's it's a beautiful concept but literally and then guys this is what's so cool this is where like it's just this beautiful lineup of synchronicity I've also had I feel like for me it's just I feel like our interactions with each other as humans is sacred and I've told you guys about this before like I really feel like in a day the most meaningful things I do have to do with my connection with other people and so even that can happen at a grocery store right where you have a meaningful connection you're like put in somebody's path I mean, there's been times where it's like, oh my gosh, I was just in the exact, you know, like the person needed to say something. And I've had literally three times in the past two weeks, somebody show up randomly, tell me some story where they need, and I can tell as they're talking like, IFS would really help you. And I've been able to like line them up with therapists and stuff like that. It's almost like I learned something and then the people who need that thing just like show up and I can point them in that direction. You know what I mean? It's just so cool. Mm-hmm. So, That's really cool. It's been, the last few weeks have been a really cool example to me of you get the tools you need when you need them and then people line up who need those tools, like literally like falling into my lap. So it's really cool. And I'm really glad that, I mean, for me, it's God, you know, he just, yeah, I love that concept. I love the feeling that I'm part of something bigger, you know, that so, is really that's my cool. high five, synchronicity. That's amazing. I've actually never really heard that word used like that. So I like it. I'm going to incorporate it. And um, that's really awesome. I know. I love that when you, you can feel that like God is orchestrating things and it's cool when you're able to see it. You know what I mean? I think it's one thing sometimes we don't always recognize how it's being orchestrated, but it's cool when you're actually able to be like, oh my gosh, there's no way that I could have like planned for this. Like this just has happened. That's really cool. Um. Okay, well, mine actually feels very trivial compared to that. That was a really cool high five. Mine is actually just about a water bottle. And it is that I have this water bottle. This is not an advertisement, just to be clear. It's not a sponsor. I just, I actually just really, I have like a thing with water bottles. First of all, I do tend to lose them easily. I've actually gotten really good at it over the last couple of years, but I feel like the first couple of years of my marriage, I had a really tough time keeping hold of water bottles. Long story short, I feel like I've been through quite a few. And I don't know. I feel like there's always something in a water bottle that I don't like. This water bottle, I actually really love. It fits in a cup holder. It only takes like one click and one hand to drink it. My kids can all drink out of it. It doesn't leak. And and I actually really like the way it looks. And it's easily carried. So it's actually the Awala water bottle. I think it's like 20 bucks at Walmart or Target. I actually got mine for free because uh, Cam, like, they gave it to everybody. He works at a hospital, and actually everybody at the hospital got it. But Cam just happened – like, they just mailed them randomly, and Cam just happened to get an extremely hot pink one. So that means it ended up just being my water bottle. <laughs> and so that's how I got it. It was just like – Cam was like, hey, do you want this water bottle? And I was like, yes, that would be great. And then I have loved it. I've loved it. So anyway – um, it's been great. Oh, and I, I don't know if I mentioned, but it also like insulates, which is, I feel like is a key thing. So it's like, if you have cold water, it stays cold. So that's my high five. And, and we can put it. a link to that baby in the email. Yes. So, and show yes. notes. So we'll put it in there. Um, it is a very cute one. I love the color myself. It's very mm-hmm. cute. Yeah, it's fun. So anyway, that's my high five. Definitely not as cool as synchronicity, but 
nonetheless, I've loved it. Um, so with that, I'm going to dive right in to, so we are going to be doing Good Inside Part 3, which I think maybe this is our first time doing a Part 3 of a book. So maybe yeah. that just goes to show there was enough things in this book that we felt like we wanted to just cover in a separate episode. Um, so if any of you haven't listened to Part 1 or 2, you can go back and look at those ones if you want to review. But just as a review, this was an amazing book. We all really loved it and definitely worth a read as a parent. Like I think anyone and everyone would benefit from reading this book. It's just really well-written with really concrete tips. We've loved it. So today we're going to kind of get into a few like specific examples that I think all kids deal with um, and all parents deal with with our kids and just ways to look at them and tips with how to deal with them. So to start off, we're going to get right into lying for kids. And just to, I think it was really helpful for me because I actually read this right around the same time where my first, I feel like, just kind of started like dabbling in this. And it was so nice to have some of this reframing and kind of the understanding behind why kids do this. Um, just to know that it's actually like just totally normal uh, stuff and how we can see it in the in a healthy way and how we can respond to it. So I think something important that Dr. Becky, uh, her name is Dr. Becky Kennedy, we'll call her Dr. Becky, um, that she talks about is, something like some reasons why kids will lie is that so a couple of reasons one of them is that telling the truth might threaten their attachment with the caregiver so they subconsciously think like you know if they've done something wrong we're going to give the example of you know it, like even if i think for little kids it's like so it's so cute because it's sometimes it's like i actually know that you did it you know what i mean like where it's like you'll walk in and it's like they're they can even be like drawing on the wall with a marker and it's like Oh, I didn't do this. Like <laughs> this did just, this is a real story. Like, oh, like another kid did this. And it's like, I don't, I, yeah, like, I don't think so. But I can see like, you maybe wish that they, that another kid had, but for, for them, it might be like, oh, I'm, this might, you know, like subconsciously they're thinking like, I don't want you to be unhappy with me, whatever it may be. So I'm just going to like say, say something else like that somebody else did it. Um, which I think is actually really darling that they are like, I don't know. They're like little minds are like so cute. Um, so that could be one reason. Another reason is they honestly just like slip into a fantasy land, which is so typical for kids. Like they are, sometimes they don't, they kind of blur the line between what's reality and what is imaginary. And they're so often in their imaginary play that sometimes they almost get like lost in it. Like, and so I think some examples of that are like, you know, like I, you know, I, in, the, in a game or something, I've heard people say this about their kids, like, I scored all the goals in my game. And like, for them, they might even have like felt like they did. And it doesn't even mean that it was like, it's not like they're lying for anything. They just happen to be imagining that they did. So I think that's another thing. And then sometimes it can just be, they're like kind of testing out power. And so they're asserting independence. So, and I think it probably looks different for every age of kid, but those all can be reasons behind lying. And so one, I think, tip that she gives that I think is really helpful when um, kind of handling these situations is reframing it as a wish. So I think like in the case of the marker situation where it's like, you know, for a fact that actually they are the ones either because you caught them doing it or because it makes sense that they would be the only ones doing it. Um, 
which just to be clear in this situation, it actually was a dry erase marker. So thank goodness it was very easy to just like wipe off and it was really easy for him to do it. So it was great and it ended up being good, but you can just reframe it as a wish. So you can just say, oh, you really wish that maybe like maybe someone else had done it and that's okay. Or so whatever it may be, you can just reframe it as that. Cause a lot of times they are just saying it and that's kind of what it is. And you can even, sometimes it might make sense that you, you say it too. Like sometimes I wish I hadn't done things that like I did and like, it's okay. We can like, we can clean up our messes or like, then you can just move on with it instead of don't like, instead of putting a lot of like weight on it being like, listen, I know that you're not telling the truth. Like we don't necessarily have to do that every time we can just reframe it as a wish, except that maybe it was a lie. And sometimes it, we can just say, I've had that too. Like sometimes I've done things that I wish I hadn't done and that's okay. Sometimes we do that and you know, whatever it is. So I think that that's a really nice way to almost even like take the power out of the lie. Cause it's like, you're just moving on with it. And what can we do next? Mm-hmm. I like this, the concept of lying. I love, I think of all the books we've read, she's been my favorite, the way she actually thoroughly explains it because we actually get a lot of questions about lying and it's difficult because when I hear people tell their stories, I mean, you can tell the underlying fear is that your kid is going to become a pathological liar, right? You know what I mean? Like that one that you talked about with games. I actually have several friends who are like, we come home and they're so upset because they're like, my son literally said he scored three goals and he didn't score any, you know, like, where is this coming from? Why are they lying about it? Like I was at the game. Hello. Like I know you didn't or any of those things. Yeah. I didn't break it. Whatever, whatever the thing is. And I mean, I've heard Janet Lansbury talk about it a little bit. I love what she says, but um, Dr. Becky Kennedy in this book, I just think she does the best job because the the things that were takeaways for me, first of all, I love the three, those are like three main reasons why kids lie. But the thing I loved about it is because we think of lying as this moral issue, but for kids, when they're like, yes, yeah, slipping in and out of fantasy and they're, they're testing out their attachment to us, and they're also testing out their independence. Lying is a really common thing that kids experiment with. And so it really, I think, kind of gives us a little bit of freedom when we realize, okay, so there's a really good chance our kid's going to lie about something. So what is our job and and what is their job in this situation, right? Just like when I set a limit, my job is to set the limit. My kid's job is to feel whatever they're going to feel about it. But my job is to still hold that boundary. You know what I mean? I like this in this lying situation. So what's our job and what's their job? Kid lies. We're, we either know they're lying or we think you're probably lying, right? Our job, I love it. She says, our job is not to get them to confess. Us like wheedling a confession out of them. Like you must tell me that you lied. <laughs> She's like, that can just, we're threatening the, the attachment concept, right? But there's nothing wrong. But So I've had a problem though because yeah, I don't want to make it into this big, like, I push harder, they push harder. But at the same time, I've thought, I don't want to have my kid just, though, like, know that I, I need them to know that I know. (laughs) You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? And I love the way she says it. She kind of phrases it. She gives several examples of phrasing it in kind of like a hypothetical. Like, you know, if, and I love it because she uses a lot of unity words, like identifying as a family. So she'll say something like, if a kid in my family, in our family, were to do that, I would know that it's probably because they were having a hard time about this. And, you know, in that situation, um, they probably wish they hadn't written on the wall. But, you know, if a kid in my family did that, I'd say, I would say to that kid, hey, not a big deal. Let's clean it up together. You know what I mean? Like, 
So you're almost like you're not having them have to like admit it necessarily and like shame them for it, but you're kind of recognizing, hey, you know, if it if a kid in our family happened to do that, this is how we fix it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you're mm-hmm. kind of like replaying it in their mind. And sometimes they do come out and say, you know, it was me. And sometimes they don't. But what you're doing to them is you're showing them, you know what? First of all, I kind of know here. Second of all, I still love you. Like the attachment's still here. And I'm also going to show you how we can do our best to fix things. And that's sometimes mm-hmm. the base is broken and there is no fixing it, you know? So, mm-hmm. it, but you, it's still the same concept of, you know, we're going to sweep it up together, whatever it is. So um, I'm going to give a real life example of this. When I read this book, I was like, ooh, yeah, this just happened in my, in my life. Uh, we're talking about little toddler things, but my example was with my 11-year-old. So <laughs> I was like a little... It's, it's hard. Like, it's just hard. So she, in sixth grade, her teacher takes, she calls them TLC points away. It's like their, I don't know, consequence system in their classroom. And my daughter is really, really a, like a conscientious student. And she's very, um, anyway, she's like, you can tell like getting in trouble is like her worst nightmare. So she hasn't lost all year. She hasn't lost a single TLC point. And her teacher is always like, hey, guys, it's okay to lose TLC points. Like, that's, we don't have to be perfect. So I actually really like her teachers, like the way she teaches non-perfectionism. But anyway, my daughter had not lost a TLC point. But she came home. Every week they get like a note. And on the note it says if they lost any TLC points and why. So she comes home with this note, right? And when she came home, she told me, she's like, I lost a TLC point. And she was really sad. I mean, you know, she's crying about it. And I was like, hey, you know, this is a great. This is where we learn, you know, progress, not perfection. So I was like, hey, you know what? We're all humans. We make mistakes. Tell me about it. So she's crying. She tells me. And you can tell she's like so upset about the reason why. It's because she forged my signature on a math pretest that said that we went over the pretest, but we hadn't. Sorry, not pretest. It's like she took a math test and then we we're supposed to go over it together. And then she was supposed to bring it back to show like we went over this test together but you can tell she'd forgotten to show it to me she'd gone to school and realized oh my gosh we didn't go over that so she forged my signature and her teacher caught her so that's you know that's the premise of the story but it's interesting because as she told me she you could tell she still couldn't even tell me that she'd forged my signature she said something like um no I didn't forge your signature I just did like a scribble and she thought I had forged it you know I mean it it was like I mean it didn't make sense like the story she said I was like that's like not a good (laughs) story (laughs) 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 you gotta work on your stories here anyway um but but you know I had her teacher her teacher luckily had written me a note so like I could see that she had forged my signature and I was like hey guess what um if a kid in our, and I had just read this part of the book, so I was like, I'm going to test this out, okay? <laughs> I was like, I mean, because again, it's obvious. Her teacher literally written, she's forged your signature. <laughs> My daughter is telling me she hasn't. So this is like a very clear situation, right? So I say, hey, you know what? If a kid in our family happened, if they did forge my signature, I would say, you're a good kid, and I love you, and... Um, you were probably frustrated or sad that we hadn't gotten to do the test together and you didn't want to get in trouble from your teacher. 
So, you know, I, I know you and I know if you did that I get, I get it. Like I understand why and let's make a plan for next time. That's what I would say to somebody who did forge my signature, you know, just like hypothetically. And it's funny because she looks at me and she's like, so, you know, and I do it. And it, like at this point, I'm almost kind of laughing because I'm like, you know, like hypothetically, if that were to happen, I would say I could see how that felt like a really good reason to you. I'm not saying I'm okay with you doing that. I'm just saying like, you know, I can see why you'd want to. You don't want to get in trouble from your teacher. You're a really good kid. I love you. Um, so you're not in trouble here, you know. Um, I just want to talk about it. And it's funny. She looks at me and she's like, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I did forge your signature, which is so funny because I'm like, well, obviously. <laughs> but but I wasn't even going for a confession. I was literally just giving her this hypothetical advice. You know what I mean? Like, if it were to be that, then I would say this. And then I would say, also, let's make a plan for next time, hypothetically. So so it's almost like I like took her off the hook of being like, you must confess this to me right now because obviously you're lying. It was more just like a, I would get your motivation for this. But let's make a plan for next time. Um, if that happens again, I'm okay with, I mean, you have, they give them like 16 TLC points for the whole thing. Like I can see how, what, how cool is that? The next time we'll be really motivated to go over the test together. And I would love, you know, let's make a plan. So we actually kind of made a plan for next time to make sure that doesn't happen again. And it was cute. It was actually cute to watch her like go from defensive, totally lying about it, which made no sense. I mean, it's not the best plan I've ever heard to to she was like kind of like we got a little bit of humor into it and I wasn't expecting her like confess but she did you know what I mean she was like yeah I did that and we made a plan together and it was ended up being like a nice connecting moment mm -hmm. that I don't think I think she's gonna leave at least I felt like leaving the conversation it wasn't like condoning lying at all it was just saying hey I can see this and guess what like our attachment is not threatened here and we also learned a really good lesson from it so it's okay you know mm -hmm. so I just like that concept of so the the kind of script is and in this book she actually gives you full scripts like it's actually like in this example try this out but the kind of script is sometimes you know sometimes I do things that I regret too or you kind of relate it to you you can say things like if a kid in our family did that this is what I would say to them. And you're emphasizing worth still intact. You're recognizing even making a plan for a way to do it differently next time. So you're still giving them the opportunity to learn from their lie. You're still giving them the opportunity to like walk them through <laughs> that the lying didn't necessarily help them. But you're also not like shaming them for it. And then you're letting them take the lesson from it. Does that make sense? It's, mm -hmm. I really, I don't know, it worked. Works for me. I would give it a thumbs up in practically trying it at home. Yes. Yeah. I love that. I think just to reiterate, I love, again, I feel like a lot of her tips, it not only maintains connection, but I feel like it kind of infuses it into the situation where it could have been a break. Like if you had tried to push it in a certain way, a break in connection, meaning you could have repaired it. But I think I just love that, that it's like, we can still maintain connection. I still love you. You're still a good kid. And and this happened, like this also happened, you know what I mean? Like two things can be true at once. And I think that's so good for kids. Cause I feel like I can remember times as a kid, like similar situations where whether I can also, I can remember like hilarious times looking backwards, like as a little kid, I probably lied about something. And the more like older elementary school into teenage years where I was like, yeah, I was, I was worried. Cause I didn't want my parents to like 
either think badly of me or something like this. And I can remember, I actually feel like my parents never read this book, but I actually feel like they were really good about it. And they did, they did help me always know that I was a good kid. And I feel like that maintained my connection with them, you know? So anyway, I love, I love that. And that concept, I love when you said both can be true. That's one of my favorite takeaways from this book. And I've used myself, I've found myself telling people that all the time. When people like tell me their stories, they feel like it happens probably once a day. Some random person tells me like this really intense story that they've, some trauma they've been through or whatever. And it's interesting that phrase, both can be true, applies all the time. Like I love it. You, you can be a good kid and also have just lied about that and also learn a lesson about it. All those things can be true together. You can want healing for yourself and want it for other people in your life. Like you can be motivated by both. You know what I'm saying? Like I find myself saying that to people all the time. You can be both scared and excited. You can be both happy and sad. Like I just love it. That both can be true thing is one of my favorite takeaways from this book. Both things can be true. You can be both a responsible person and the person that forgot that thing. You know, like Mm-hmm. it's not all or nothing like this is not an all or nothing endeavor this living thing you know what I mean anyway. mm-hmm. what I loved about <clears throat> this approach to lying with our kids is that um we've talked about um Gabor Mate's books a little bit we haven't reviewed them but he's come up a lot and one of the things that he talks about is that like as humans we have two motivations like in our psyche attachment and authenticity Mm -hmm. and oftentimes as kids we well most of the time as kids we'll choose attachment to our caregiver over authenticity because we have to survive physically and our caregiver is like by being attached to them then they will this is all in subconscious right but it it is threatening to our survival as an actual like physical being if we are threatening our attachment to our caregiver because, well, in our subconscious, they might not feed us. They might give us away. They might like all of these like big, scary things. So that's more physically pertinent to our survival than authenticity. And he says, the trouble is we go through our childhood seeking to attach. So we slowly chip away at our authentic selves because we're choosing attachment. But this approach to lying allows authenticity and attachment our we're not like our child can can know that them as their true self what actually did happen still is worthy of love and attachment to us and i just think that's i mean if you can start that when they're drawing on the wall imagine the relationship you create as teenagers and adults when they're like doing these big problems. I think it's really cool that we have a chance to preserve the attachment and the authenticity for our kids through little, like these situations seem small, but it is laying the foundation for our relationship in the future. I think that's really cool. Yes. Yeah. I love that. I, uh, as you were talking, I was just thinking of, I don't know why I didn't put this, I didn't connect this tactic with this until now and I wonder what Dr. Becky Kennedy would say about this but Hank Smith who's another I don't know a a cool guy who teaches (laughs) things I think he's is he an author I don't even know anyway I heard him in an interview once and he was saying that for his kids he has a once a week 
what is it? He has like, it's almost like office hours. I think he's a professor. And so he does like this thing at their house though, like in office hours. And the thing is you can come to me and tell me anything and I'm not going to punish you for it. I'll, I'll help you solve it together. And if there's obviously like a law punishment situation, like I'm not going to spare you from that, but like, I'm not going to mete out punishment to you as it, and these are for us teenagers. And it was interesting because Jeff and I were talking with, um, my, I only have one teenager right now. She's 13. And it was interesting. Like it really was like in our conversation, it was one of those like, Hey, just so you know, like if you want to bring something to us, right now like to say that like I will help you solve a problem like I don't mind I want you to know that I'm in this with you I'm not gonna like cover up for you or like remove the consequences for you but that there is something really liberating for a teenager I think that if you have it just the reason why I'm telling you this I'm not saying whether or not you should do that tactic or not I'm just saying there's something really amazing and and I've actually speaking of synchronicity I know somebody really who just shared an example of with me. They gave an example of something their mom did when they were little, getting like withdrawing love for like almost a week over something that this kid did that was just like an innocent kid thing. You know what I mean? Like they accidentally went somewhere without telling their mom. You know what I mean? They just were like and got like lost track of time and the mom was scared and whatever. So but anyway, but what I'm saying is something happened to this kid and um, this person didn't feel like they could go to their mom because the way she had reacted to just them losing track of time. Like this person thought, my mom will never love me again if I say this. And it was actually an abuse situation. So mm-hmm. like the kid could have got help from his parents but didn't. And anyway... Um, the reason why I'm saying that is because I think what Felicia brought up there is just a really important concept that the way we react to our children over small things, spilling the milk, breaking the vase, um, throwing a jar across the room, whatever, the way we react to that is setting a pattern for either when there's bigger things like, yeah, somebody does something to them that they want to tell, but they're afraid they're going to lose your love. So they don't. I mean, that's like, the script of like most like so often when something bad happens to a kid, they don't tell people, they don't tell their caregivers because they're afraid it's going to threaten their connection. And I mean, I know we're jumping to like scary stuff here, like abuse, but I mean, a lot of times like an abuser will say things like that. Like nobody's going to love you if they find out about this. Right. And so it just reinforces that. So, or on the other hand, I mean, that's, we're jumping into a dark place, but on the other hand, it can be just, you make a mistake as a teenager you metaphorically broke something, you know, like, or you literally did break a window and you didn't tell anybody about it. Like that happens. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like teenagers do, like they do dumb stuff sometimes. And I want to be there. Like, I want them to feel like they can actually come and tell me. And how do I do that? Hopefully, hopefully, like we're all hoping for this, right? We're hoping that we have responded to them enough and their mistakes throughout their whole life in a way that shows them our attachment is not threatened here. Because it is at a genetic level, we don't want to disrupt our attachment to our caregivers. So if we can show them, like, this doesn't disrupt our attachment, I'm here to help you. And yeah, I'm not going to shield you from the consequences. Like, you're going to, we're going to clean up this glass together, but like, I'll be with you for it. You know what I mean? And I think this whole way is a beautiful way that we can kind of recognize and almost play in their mind. Like, well, you know, if, if you were to have broken this, this is what we'd do. 
you're you're creating those neural pathways of like you can still take responsibility for your actions and also not have your attachment threatened. You can be authentic and have our attachment like our attachment is not being threatened here at all. And how we do that is by not withdrawing, not freaking out in anger. And when we do freak out in anger because we're humans, we know how to repair it, which on our we'll link it, but our first episode on this, we go in entire steps on how to repair. Repairing is huge. So again, I'm not saying we have to do this perfectly. I guess I'm what I'm trying to say is that this concept is a really, really important concept as our kids get older or as the stakes get higher. Can we teach our children that our attachment to them is never threatened regardless of their authenticity? You know what I mean? And again, this does not mean being permissive. This means we can still hold boundaries and even hold consequences. It simply means that we are showing our kids over and over and over so that they can bring the big stuff to us when hopefully it never happens to them. Hopefully it's just mistakes they've made. You know, that's what, but all of our kids are going to make mistakes and we want them to bring them to us. We also want, if something happens to them, I want them to be able to come to me. I want, I want my kids to know that my love for them, my attachment for them, I'm not going to withdraw from them no matter what they bring to me. You know what I mean? But it really does start, it starts with spilled milk. It starts with broken vases. It starts with the ball that knocks the plant over. Like that's where it starts. We're showing Mm -hmm. our kids this pattern when they lie to us. We're showing them over and over and over I'm still here like I'm here with you and I can see and I can see clearly you know what I mean and I'm still loving you for it so anyway so that was kind of a it's kind of a tangent there but I think that's the important big picture we're talking about here you know yeah Yeah. absolutely so it's funny as we're talking about lying and then as I'm looking at the things that we want to cover to wrap up this book. It's really interesting to be an adult and like reframe these things. Um, fear, shyness and hesitation, being easily frustrated. And I realize as we look at this list of things that can irritate us as parents, how it's like, it's all because of our ego. Um, we have fears. We are shy and hesitant about things. We get frustrated. I get easily frustrated. (laughs) And it's interesting because I've, it just makes me wonder, have I conditioned myself to react differently to these things because I was told that it's not okay to be scared, shy and hesitant, or easily frustrated? Or have I learned how to manage them I don't really know, but it was just worth thinking about. When I looked at our our next topic is fear um, and not to negate our kids' feelings of fear. It's really interesting because fear is tricky in parenting when our kids are, no, I don't want to go off the diving board, even though as an adult, you're like, it's perfectly fine. Like, stop being scared. It's like so annoying. Just do it. Uh, Like, we all have things we're scared of and... So how do we create this healthy relationship so our kids aren't negating their natural fear instinct that is really can serve you and is important? Then also on the flip side, we've had times as an adult where we're super scared. And in a way, it feels like you kind of negate it to do something that is scary. And then you're glad that you did. So I think this is like a tricky fear is a tricky balance I think we have a couple episodes on fear but what are your guys' thoughts with 
meshing those two together. <laughs> well, yeah, I think you bring up a really good point because there's definitely a balance to it. And it is hard. Like sometimes it can be hard. I think one of the things, at least when she talks about, and so, I mean, to give an example, when she talks about being, yeah, like if they're afraid of the dark or something like that, like they're afraid of something. Um, I think, I think I love what she says about like, it is always important. What I mean, and this is what we talk about with all emotions, right. But to acknowledge, validate and permit it. Right. So like, I think, and I think it's important for us to do with ourselves that it's like, man, I'm feeling really scared because, you know, and I'm trying to think of an adult fear for myself. I'm sure if I take some more time, but for them, it's like, you're, you're kind of scared of like being in your room in the dark. And maybe you can look for a clue, like you can look for clues as to why they're doing it. But I think um, it's interesting because actually one fear that I can think of with my three-year-old is he's kind of scared of dogs, which is an interesting one for me to navigate because for me, like I love dogs. I don't, I don't have that fear. Like there's some other fears that I can totally relate with, especially like being a kid. But that one I'm like, oh man, like why is he, like when we will pass dogs, like I can tell and he'll say, I don't like dogs and I especially don't like big dogs. And so it's interesting. It's been an w- interesting fear for me to navigate because I'm like, huh, like, and I, and I want to, my first reaction is, oh, but honey, like, kind of like, I want to be like, you don't need to be scared of it. Like, it's a really nice dog. That dog's on a leash. Look, we can even pet it, you know? And I get why I want to just straight go to that of like, you don't need to be scared. But I think there is something... I think one of the things that I liked in this book too is that she actually brings up, she kind of brings up like um, the example of if it was like your husband, your spouse to you, like if you were to go somewhere and your spouse would just be like, hey, like stop, like stop being scared of this. It's okay. Like here's why you don't need to be scared. You might kind of be like, hey, like I don't feel like you're really, (laughs) you're not really with me. Like you're not getting what I'm saying here. Like I get that you're saying this shouldn't be a scary thing, but for me, it actually is like, it is a scary thing. And so I like that, that it's like, we don't necessarily have to even, we don't have to fix the problem right away. The main thing is, is just to acknowledge it and say like, Hey, I see that you're kind of unsure about this, or you're a little scared about this and just acknowledging it and almost giving it a space that it's like, I'm here with you in the fear of it. And I see you and I feel that with you. I think that that does a lot for kids. And honestly with the dog, so the dog situation, he still feels this. It's not like we've like, now we've gotten over it and he's good. I still feel like I have to like be there and say like, hey, I can see that you're a little scared of this. And then I feel like in other, in like maybe a different situation, because sometimes like we're passing a dog on a walk, but then I feel like then it can be my job maybe even at a later time to be like, hey, I can see you're really scared about this. And then maybe like looking for more of the clues as to why. And I think we can put this in the links, but um, oh my gosh, now I'm blanking on the title of it. But was it play- Playful Parenting? He kind of talks about ways that you can bring playful, like a playful mode into like when you're playing with your kid, almost helping them work through fears. And we can link that episode and that book, but to go into more details about how to how to deal with it. But I think one of the key things is just simply like acknowledging that it's like, yeah, I see that that's kind of scary. And I feel that I, I see why you would feel that way. I don't know. I think that that does a lot. And I think it does a lot when we do it for ourselves and our fear instincts. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we don't still maybe go through with some things that are scary to us, but I think we still like, it's, it's uh, important for us to still 
acknowledge that within ourselves. I know that doesn't totally answer all the questions that you're saying, Felicia, but those are some of my thoughts with it. I think the concept of fear is honestly one of my favorite things. I have a whole episode about fear that, yeah, we'll post. But for me, is actually, I also feel like this month we've had a lot with my kids conversations about that with fear. And it's beautiful that we just read this because I think, Caitlin, you're exactly right. And I love how uh, Dr. Becky talks about that is really our job in fearful situations is to acknowledge that there's a reason for them to be fearful. Like, no, sorry, sorry, not that. Because sometimes it's like we're trying to say there's really not a reason. You know what I mean? Um, but the the point is that we're not invalidating it. Like we're not, we don't have to enforce it. What I'm saying is we don't have to be like, oh yeah, dogs are really scary. Like you have a, re- you know, like we don't want to make them more scared of dogs. But there's nothing wrong with saying, wow, I can really see that you're scared right now. Yeah, I can see that. And you're not necessarily trying to talk him out of his fears. But in that example, it's a really beautiful example because you can show him by modeling it, that you're not afraid of dogs. You know what I mean? Like you're not saying, oh, you have no reason. You can say, yeah, I can totally see that. And then show him and look, but like, look at, I am having this really positive experience with this dog, right? And it doesn't require any like moralizing or anything. You can just simply model the behavior that you're hoping for him, right? And Mm -hmm. still acknowledge that it's okay to be afraid. Like you can totally stand behind the stroller if you want to. I'm going to pet that. I'm going to pet it though. You know what I mean? That's what I want to do. And so it's this beautiful example of you can show him that it's, first of all, safe to be scared. You're not going to withdraw or shame him from feeling scared. But you can also show him that you can have a positive experience with this thing too, right? So um, to me, there's something beautiful about having this conversation with our children about the kinds of fear. That some fears are warning us that there's danger and other fears are worth pushing through. You know what I mean? So I'm going to feel the fear and do it anyway kind of a thing. And that's a two different, there's two different kinds. They're really like one's a warning and one is like a, yes, there's just a risk measurement here, but I'm still going to do the thing with the fear. And for me, it's been really liberating when I talk to my kids about stuff. I had this amazing uh, situation just two weeks ago with my daughter about doing tumbling. She was feeling all these things and kind of feeling scared about it. And it was interesting because as we were talking, we're talking about it what it came down to was what what is it that you want like do you want this in the end and she does so we got to talk about how like so then that's the kind of fear that you talk to and you say I see you but I'm going to do this thing anyway and I think even as a our children are able to navigate that if from a young age we allow them to actually fear it we don't have to moralize fear there's nothing wrong with feeling fear and then we model and that's all we can do but I think for it's it's challenging I think as an adult especially for me I'm like a I love doing scary stuff so for me you know if it's like we're jumping off of something high I want to just be like oh my gosh if you just do this you're gonna love how you feel after you know what I mean even though that high dive is kind of scary you jump off it you're gonna feel so great and I just want to like force them you know what I mean like I because I want I know that I love that feeling so I want to like force them but what I found with my kids they all have different temperaments so all I say, I'm going to use a high dive as an example. Yeah, I totally see. That's, it is. It's kind of scary, isn't it? That's fine. If you need to come back down, it's fine. I'm just proud of you for climbing up there. You know, whatever it is. But then I model, but I love jumping off the high dive, so I'm going to go jump off it. You know what I mean? So they see me be scared and still do something that I want to do. So I'm modeling that. But then it's interesting. You take my four kids and 
just my two older. One is going to see that and be like, I'm going to jump off that high dive. And the second one's probably going to climb up three or four times, maybe for the summer. And at the end of the season, she's going to jump off. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's going to take her the whole summer to get to that point. Like we actually had that almost exact situation, but it was with a, a thrill ride at, at Lagoon, which is like an amusement park bias. It took her all season to be able to do it. She'd wait in the line even. And then at the end, be like, no, nah, I'm not going to do it. And every time I'd be like, yeah, I get it. You, it's really fast and you kind of go upside down. It's so fun though. I know that once, I'm pretty sure once you do it, you're going to love it. But like, I get it. If you're afraid, that's okay. Like I didn't shame or anything. Took her to the end of the season. And of course she loved it so much. She was like, oh, now I'm so sad that the season's over. But it was cute because she worked through it herself. You know what I mean? Like it, I wasn't like strapping her on, which I've seen parents do. You know what I mean? Like I've seen actually on that exact ride. It's cannibal if you've ever been to Lagoon. I've seen parents like put their kid in put them on and the kid's just crying you know what I mean and it's dramatic this one time that happened guys I'm not kidding I'm not kidding she was on the road in front of us the parent like forces her in she's screaming she passes out on the ride and oh hits her gosh. head like because you know she's, she can't hold herself up so she's like so at the end oh now she's crying because she hit her head so hard and I was like oh my gosh this is oh. so traumatic for this poor girl she's not like, this is not helping her like thrill rides. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm. But anyway, but what I'm saying is, like, from my other daughter that took her, like, many times going and, like, working through, waiting in the line at the last second saying, oh, no, I'm not going to go on this one. Like, she worked through that. And I didn't ever have to withdraw love or make her feel really bad about it. I could say, yeah, I get it. But then I'm also modeling. But I'm going to, like, I'm going to show you that I can be like, I'm going to be scared and I'm still going to do it. And we just model that over and over and over. You know what I'm saying? So it kind of takes for me the pressure off of my job as a parent is not to coerce my children to do things that are scared of them. My thing is to allow them to feel fear, help them differentiate between the kinds of fear and then model to them. I can do things when I'm scared. And there are other times where I'm scared and it's a warning and I don't do them, but only I can do that. I've actually started saying from this book is I trust you. I trust you on this. And I, I'll say that to my kids. I trust you to make that decision. And it's amazing because you're giving them like, because I don't trust them to make all decisions. It's age appropriate. But in that situation, like I've actually said, I'm the only one. You're the only one in your body. You're the only one who can know if that's going to work for you or not. And it's amazing. Like when you give that to them, then they're responsible for making the decision. And it's really empowering for them when they do do something that scares them. Or it's empowering for them when they're like, no, I really don't feel good about that my parents give me the autonomy to say no because guess what I want them to be teenagers when they're with a group of friends and those kids are jumping off something really dumb and if my kids feel scared and like in the kind of way that this is a warning I really shouldn't jump out of that 20 foot tall tree I want them to be able to say you know my mom trusts me to make this decision no I'm not going to jump out of that tree because that's the warning kind of fear you know so I want them to be able to have that with their friends so how can I expect them to have that kind of independent, strong boundary setting with their friends if I don't allow with me, if I force them constantly to push past that myself and I don't give them the autonomy. You know what I'm saying? So again, I guess I know I'm broadening. I did that with the lying and with this, but that's the broader picture here. We're teaching them to follow the compass inside of themselves, not shame themselves for feeling fear, but they have to figure out inside of them what the kind of fear is and what it's teaching them and the thrill well, the accomplishment that comes with pushing through hard things or listening to the warning and that we can help them figure that out. Cause yeah, when they get into risk, like the really risky behavior of teenagehood, they're going to, 
they have to have us be able to we want them to, be able to do that without us standing there by them you know what i mean so mm-hmm. for me this is also i know we're just talking about validating an emotion but to me it's way more than that it's about helping them to manage that as teenagers and adults those two different kinds of things regardless of what the people around them are saying about it you know so to me it's mm-hmm. a really powerful concept yeah <clears throat> i agree and as we move into shyness and hesitation Dr. Becky's main tip is to realize whose timeline we are on. And you're kind of saying the same thing with fear is it's that letting go of our ego and, and what we want our kids to do because outgoing, not fearful, uh, just like kind of like wing it kids are more celebrated. Just, I feel like naturally as adult, we're just like, whoa, look at her. She'll just do anything and she'll talk to anyone and she'll, try any sport and she'll jump off anything. And it's like, like, I get why, but that on the flip side, our kids who are a little bit more hesitant and shy or maybe a little bit more fearful of things, they pick up on that message. And so I think it's just important to be careful within your own family system, what you're praising so that those kids who are a little bit more hesitant, like seeing the strength in that personality type also, um, the situations that that personality type will prevent themselves from getting in, the mistakes that that personality type won't make because they're thinking about things a little bit more, whatever you need to do as a parent to reframe that, if you do, I think unless you're a really shy, hesitant more sensitive parent, you probably will tend towards like, and and even if you are, you might tend towards glorifying your child who's less scared and he'll do anything because you kind of wish that about yourself. So just being aware of that, I think is super helpful. Um, But my favorite thing that Dr. Becky, Dr. Becky says about hesitant kids is You'll know when you're ready. So it's kind of what we're talking about with fear, but giving them, granting them the gift of your confidence in their intuition and their feelings uh, is something that they'll take through the rest of their life. But so say you go to a play date, all the other kids are off playing and it's not even a new situation. Your, Your kid knows these kids. There's really no logical reason why they should be hesitant or shy about going to play, but they are. So you have two options. Oh my gosh, you know Joey and Kayla, like just get out there and play. Like, why are you being shy? Just duh, and like force them out. This is so no, we came to this play date for you. Get out there and play. That's one option. Dr. Becky's suggestion is there's something about this play date that you're not feeling ready for. Maybe it's feeling a little tricky. Oh, we haven't been to this playground, whatever. You'll know when you're ready. You can just sit by me until you're ready to go play. So it's just an accepting of our kids' intuition about the situation and acknowledgement of their feelings of hesitation. And it gives them permission to make that choice on their own. And mm-hmm. I think you could think, oh, if I do that, then every single time we go to play, they're just going to be sitting on my lap the whole time. But I have seen that the opposite is true. If they know that you are there to accept them in their nervousness, their fear, 
if they get hurt during the play date, I've seen in my kids, they're more likely to engage in the situation because they feel safe that their adult will accept if something does go wrong in the situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Again, I like, she actually, again, pairs this up with like, as an adult, like if your spouse, if you were to go into a social situation and your spouse was just like, and you're like, Hey, I'm feeling like a little unsure about this. Can I just hang by you until I'm like, if, if your spouse was like, what are you worried about? Like, Oh my gosh, no, you can go do this. Like you don't like, you don't need me. Just go like you can do it. You would feel like, Oh my gosh, I'm now I'm even more nervous because I feel like you're just kind of like not validating how I feel. You don't feel like you're not supporting me in this. So it's the same thing with our kids. If we can just be there with them and just know that like we are a safe place for them, it almost gives them the permission of like, okay, yeah, like when I'm ready, I can go do this. It like gives them the confidence that they need to sometimes, maybe they'll be there only for a minute. Maybe they'll be there for a little longer, but when they're ready, it's kind of like going back. It's almost, it's very similar to the fear thing. When they are ready, they're going to feel really confident about it. And they're going to feel confident that they can come back to you without feeling ashamed or any of those things. They're going to know that they have a safe place there. I love to, another thing that she says, and she says this in a few different situations, but the script of you're the only one in your body who knows how you feel. I like that. I've actually used that in a few different situations with Emmett where it's like, cause sometimes he'll say something and I'm like, even like something as simple, like this is slightly uh, tangential, but like he'll say something like, I think it smells bad. And I'm like, I don't think it smells bad. Like in my mind, I'm like, I don't think it smells bad. But like I'll say, I'm like invalidating it. So I'll just say, you know what? You're the only one in your body who knows how you feel. And we can use that with anything where it's like, even if we maybe don't see why they would be feeling the way they feel with the, like maybe they're feeling shy or whatever it is. We can just say, you know what? You're the only one in your body who knows how you feel. And like when you feel ready, you'll know. And so I think it's just, again, acknowledging that, yeah, that like they can trust their own feelings. And again, that helps our kids become adults who can trust their own feelings, who can trust. And like, if I, if they are feeling a little bit hesitant about something, they don't have to feel ashamed about it. They can just trust. Yeah, I'm feeling this way. And they don't have to almost like gaslight themselves and be like, wait, like, do I feel hesitant? I'm not really like, do I feel hesitant about this thing? It's like, they can just trust it. And so it's like, again, we're helping our kids from the beginning to be able to come become adults that trust themselves. And I love the, Oh, sorry. You go, Felicia. This is short, but just want to stick in here. It's easier said than done. I have one kid, my second oldest is way more hesitant and shy. And I wouldn't even necessarily say shy. He's just more easily frustrated. He, we're we're going to get into his easily frustrated and perfectionism in a minute. But it's it's easy to say this, but when you're at a soccer game and all the other kids are fine and just playing and your kid isn't responding at all, wants to just sit on your lap. That isn't a comfortable situation as a parent. And it's really easy to just be like, Oh my gosh, get in there, bribe, threaten all of those things to try to get them to engage. So just as we're saying this and when you read books and it's just like, well, just say this, I just want to acknowledge that it's hard when your kid is not engaging in a situation and you're trying to figure out what to do. <laughs> it's tricky. Yeah. 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 I agree with that. It is. <laughs> I agree. Cause yeah, you want to say either bribe or threaten or even, I mean, how many times do you hear slash do not you specifically I'm saying to myself here, 
Yeah. But like, it's so easy to say things like, look, everybody else is fine with yeah. this. Yeah. <laughs> like, hello. But, yeah. but then, yeah, we're invalidating what's happening inside of them. The cool thing about, I mean, because I've seen this almost exact scenario play out, I don't know, dozens and dozens of times in my motherhood in group situations, because it's all group situations. And it's fascinating because I can see the look on a mom's face, you know, when the kid wants to sit on their lap. And it's like, just get up there. And like the mom's kind of feeling embarrassed. And, um, but the interesting thing is anytime I've watched, and so again, this is anecdotal. I'm not saying this is like a sure thing, but oftentimes, um, when a mother gives a kid permission to, yeah, you're the only one who, you're the only one who knows how you feel inside. So when you're ready, I love that statement of confidence. Like when you're ready, you'll do it. You're kind of giving them permission to feel it and then to go forward. It's amazing a lot of times the kid just first of all sits quietly because they're like who I'm just gonna like be grateful that I can stay here but second of all then it's cute I mean I've seen it happen dozens of times where then the kid stands up with no ceremony you know just while the moms are talking and goes and joins the other kids you know what I mean like it's um I've seen it with my own kids and I'm not saying it always happens you might have somebody who's like I don't really want to join ever but there is something beautiful about giving our kid permission there's something magical for me of saying it's okay to be afraid. I use that line all the time. It's okay to be afraid. It's okay to feel that way. Yeah, you're the only one who knows what's inside of you and you'll do it when you're ready. Those to me are like magic words because you're validating and you're just giving the kid the opportunity to like, when you're ready, you're not saying there's something wrong with you. You're just saying, yeah, when you're ready, you can join. And I think that's a beautiful place to be. And something that I like that she kind of brings up, we use the word shyness, but I've read this in several books, but I think the term shy, um, we should be, anytime we're giving our kids labels, I think we should be really aware of it. And Carol Tuttle, in one of her books, I can't remember which one it is, but she actually talks about, I think it's in Child Whisper, which we can link. Yeah. But she talks about how the term shy isn't really a term that serves anybody. Like to say you're shy, or a lot of times parents will say it, they say it to another adult in front of their kid, right? They'll say, she's just really shy. You know what I mean? And something I like to point out is that I don't think that term really serves anybody. So what's another way you can say it is another way you can say that is because I think parents some for some reason do think they have to like say to other adults talk about their kids which we really don't have to but I know that there's that kind of like it's like a social component there. So instead of saying another thing to say instead of oh she's just really shy you can say She's just, you know, she's just trying out this situation or she's just waiting until she's ready or whatever. Like when somebody comes up to your kid and is like, hey, hey, talking to them and they're doing the like no eye contact, look away. Instead of being like, look at the person. Oh, she's just so shy. You can just say like, you know, she'll she'll do it when she's ready. And then you just keep talking like you don't even have to make it. You don't have to turn it into a my kid is shy. There's something deficient with her here. You can literally just say like. Oh yeah, she'll say hi when she's ready. And then you just keep talking like it's no big deal. Your your kid gets the message, this isn't a big deal. You know what I mean? Like my mom still loves me. It's okay. And you don't have to actually label them with the concept. Because there's nothing wrong with being reserved and being a little bit more cautious. Mm-hmm. But anyway, just an idea to try on. That maybe the term like labeling your child as shy um, maybe isn't the thing that's going to serve them. Because maybe... Like, I don't think it has to impede their ability to make social connections later, which is the term shyness. 
kind of imposes that definition of you're gonna have a hard time making connections with people because you're shy <laughs> you know what I mean mm-hmm. it's okay to be a little bit more reserved like I was well I was a never mind I was like a contradiction I was like a ham in front of large groups of people <laughs> but like I was really conscientious about like I didn't want to get in trouble so I'd just like be really quiet during class but my mom never labeled me as shy and turns out I'm not, but you could have, you could have thought that I was. And even if I was way more reserved, that's okay too. That's the beautiful thing is we're not saying that one's good and one's bad. It's just different natures. So mm-hmm. anyway, I just want to put that out as, as we're talking about lab, like labels in general, us giving our kids permission to be who they are and we'll allow other adults in our lives to also give them that permission. We're not forcing mm-hmm. them into stuff. And I think that, again, is going to serve them as adults because they're not going to think there's something deeply wrong with me. They're going to say, you know what? If I take a little bit of extra time, it's okay. And I love when she does say the partner thing. She uses the partner example throughout the whole book. And I love it because she always ends it with, and I'm going to take away your screen time for a week. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like think if your partner was like, or or you're not going to be able to have chocolate for a week, whatever. Like if you're if you go to a party and your partner's like, no, don't stand by me. Get out there. You have nothing to be afraid of. And if you don't, you're not going to be able to eat chocolate for a week. Like to an adult partner, you'd be like, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm going to stand by you. You know what I mean? Like, and anyway, so I like it when she used that example because we do that to kids all the time. But yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and I think, yeah, it just like brings up the it helps us be like a respectful, a more respectful person with our kids because it's like, yeah, we, we wouldn't treat. Or part, like that wouldn't be a good partnership. And so I think we show that we're connected and and choosing to be in it with our kids. Like when we can just, yeah, trust in them that they'll be ready. Um, some of the other things that we'll talk about is easily frustrated kids and some perfectionism. So e- um, easily frustrated kids. So like we don't, we um, like all we have to do when our kids get easily frustrated, which sometimes is hard, like with a little kid, they I mean, for me, it like happens on a daily basis where it's like, you know, there's a lot of things that they're trying to do that they, that they can't, like they're learning. Right. So it's like, even just simply like, yeah, putting on shoes, zipping up their coat. It's like, I feel like, especially in the wintertime, we're like putting on coats and Emmett like to zip up a coat, sometimes it gets snagged and like, he'll just like be so frustrated about it, you know? And so it's interesting. Cause I feel like sometimes it feels as a parent, it can be very exasperating, I think, but, um, but like for our kids, we don't have to necessarily always offer a solution. We can just um, like be there with them and know like, yeah, like sometimes learning's hard and it can be f- like frustrating and we can just like acknowledge and permit it. We don't necessarily have to like rush them through it or be like, oh my gosh, why are you frustrated this again? We can simply just like, again, be there with them in it. And again, I think sometimes that can be liberating because for me, it is very easy to be like, Oh my gosh. Like, even if it's like in my mind, I'm like, okay, like this is not a big deal. It's okay. But for them it is like, it is a big deal. And it would be frustrating. Like if there were so many things throughout our day that we just like couldn't do, it'd be frustrating. So I think just realizing that it's like, sometimes we don't necessarily have to even offer any solutions. We can simply just be them, be there with them. Yeah. I think it's easy to either, if you have a kid who gets easily frustrated, um, it's easy to fix the problem, either tell them what to do to figure it out or to do it yourself or to negate their perception of how hard it is. So I think just remembering 
that even though the zipping up the coat is as an adult, you're just like, oh my gosh, like that might be one of the harder things that a two-year-old has to do in the day. <laughs> so just like be there with them, allow them to be frustrated. And I think there, I think there also is a lot of value in not jumping right in and rescuing them from the situation, helping them establish that growth mindset of if something is hard, that means I'm learning from the situation. Mm -hmm. And we do have, we have a whole episode on growth mindset, at least one that we can link. I think this is a way bigger topic. So we're not going to like deep dive the growth mindset for time's sake. We'll link that episode. But I think it's one of the harder thing to to teach kids. Honestly, I think it's, it's a, it's a whole like big topic to help your kids establish that grit, especially because we live in a society that like how we live our lives is kind of like the opposite of gritty. (laughs) It's like set up to be so easy. So Mm -hmm. honestly, I like, well, I probably could say this like a fact that kids are less gritty now than ever before. Right. Like I think as society gets more cush, our kids get way less gritty. So sometimes you almost have to like create those situations to help them get that grit. So we'll link that episode. Um, But I would just say, don't, don't take away the problem, but don't negate the feelings of frustration. Be there with them. Kind of like what we were saying with them these other topics as well. All right, let's move in. Oh, sorry, Taryn. Well, I was going to say that it's perfect because this whole concept is we're talking about the less desirable aspects of our children's behavior that is frustrating to us. And the beautiful opportunity we have here as parents is to show them over and over and over and over that it's okay to feel those things. And we're going to, we're going to help them through it. Right. We're not going to solve it for them. We're, yeah, we're not going to, that doesn't mean we have to go and do the puzzle for them. We're going to accept that they feel frustrated. And that leads us into exactly what we're going to say, please jump. That leads us into all kids get frustrated. All kids have fears. Okay. All humans, not even kids, all humans get frustrated, have fear. We all have times, even the most extroverted among us has times where we're uncomfortable in a social setting and we want to hang back. Okay. So we all as humans have those. It's just on a spectrum, right? Like how um, nervous are we in social settings? So it's all just like this kind of concept that we're just on kind of this like continuum. But there are some kids and I love it. She has an entire section and this reminds me of, and again, I'll post the episode that we talked about Child Whisper, but it reminds me of a lot of what Carol Tuttle's work with Child Whisper, where we're talking about individual natures. Some natures are just a lot more, I'm going to use the word extreme, but they're just further on this continuum of sensitivity. And she calls them deep DFKs, deeply feeling kids. And I just love it because this is kind of, she uses it as an endearing term. But the reason why I think it's worth going into is because I think deeply feeling kids can easily get the message that something's wrong with them. And they grow into adults who think there's just something wrong about me. My parents couldn't handle me. Their, their fear is I am too much for my parents, right? And these are kids who get really easily frustrated. They go to zero to 60 in like super fast. They go into fight or flight. They shut down really easily as in like talking about emotions for a deeply feeling kid is 
too much. So if you start talking about emotions, they might just shut off and not even talk to you anymore. You know what I mean? They struggle to accept help. They usually think that being vulnerable, they feel shame about being vulnerable. So they can't do something. Not only is it, and these kind of kids, you'll hear say the term, that's stupid a lot. You know, they'll try to do something. It's not working. They'll be like, oh, that's stupid. And to them, it's like, I'd rather not even try this and fail because if I can't do it, there's like, this is just so dumb. It's like an all or nothing kind of mentality. You know what I mean? Like if I can't do this well, I'm just frustrated. I'm not going to do it at all. They, um, when they do something bad, it equates to them thinking they are bad. So they jump to shame quite easily. Uh, they're scared of their emotions and others reaction to them. Sometimes their actions don't seem logical to us as people who have become adults. And cause I'm not going to, cause they're deeply feeling adults too, as I say this, but usually by the time we've reached adulthood, we can regulate our emotions a little bit better. And so these are just, again, if we're calling them DFKs, these are the, these are the kids who are just really, really sensitive. And we feel as adults, like just small things set them off. And we're wondering why are they, why are you crying? Because your socks are too tight on your toes. You know what I mean? Like, but I love it. She gives this beautiful perspective in that deeply feeling is a beautiful, beautiful power. It allows you to connect in with others. It allows you to be sensitive to your own emotion. But as a kid, before you learn how to regulate it, that can be really frustrating. So the message we want to give our children, especially if they're deeply feeling kids who are extra sensitive, the message that we're trying to give them is you are okay just how you are. And I'm going to teach you and I'm going to model for you what it's going to look like. So you can push through, not push through, you can process. You feel overwhelmed by emotions. You shut down. Guess what? I'm still here for you. And I'm going to teach you that it's okay to feel that. And then when you're ready later, we're going to talk about it. I'm not going to force you in the middle of your shutdown to talk about something. But later we can circle back and say something like, hey, you know, I noticed you're really frustrated with that puzzle today and you threw it across the room. That's, um, I can see you're really frustrated about it. And then you can say things like, it's okay not to be good at something on the first try, you know, that feel, but it's okay to be frustrated about it too. You know what I mean? Like you're just allowing that emotion. But I think there's something liberating for me as a parent, knowing that some kids just simply are a lot more sensitive. And if you're dealing, I like it because she's like, if you're dealing with the DFK, there's just a few great tips you can know. So we're going to go through kind of those specific tips now. But I want you to think, most of us can think of several DFKs in our life, adults and kids. You know what I mean? Yeah. But especially kids. I have um, somebody, oh my gosh, who I love. When he was little, clearly a DFK. And now that he's, I mean, he's like a late teenager and- you can still tell he's a sensitive person, but of course he's learned to regulate his emotions. So I guess I'm just saying, as I'm describing what a DFK is, any of you out there who are like, you have a two-year-old who you're like, oh my gosh, that is exactly my two-year-old. They go to from zero to 60. They're so sensitive about stuff and it's feeling frustrated for you right now. What I'm saying is it's a beautiful gift if you can just teach them how to process it in a beautiful way that you're teaching them that like you still love them no matter what. And they learn how to regulate it. It's amazing. Here's, yeah. here's some good tips. Yeah. Everyone out there with a two-year-old is like, they're a DFK. Every two-year-old <laughs> is a DFK. <laughs> Just good. Okay, so my favorite, I have, uh, so my six-year-old is definitely a deeply feeling cute little guy. Um, and my favorite tip for DFKs is 
realizing that when they're having their big emotions, they really have a hard time separating the outcome, the behavior, the outcome of a situation from themselves. So they feel like if, you know, they're, they're bit these big emotions that they're having or, you know, they threw something or they hit someone or yeah, their socks are uncomfortable. So they're screaming. Or if I try this and I fell, then that outcome that happens, whatever they've made up in their mind, they're having trouble separating that from they are a good kid. Like they, they take it on as their worth. Um, and so they see that when they're in that vulnerability, they, they connect it to shame. So like they start to feel like I'm a bad person because of X, Y, Z. I'm crying about this or I need to ask for help. That could be being vulnerable, but they feel shameful about it. They don't feel like a good person if they have to, have to ask for help. So a lot of the times DFKs end up being the perfectionist or looking really shy or hesitant because they don't want to mess up in any way because that makes them not good or less than or not as good as their brother or whatever it is. So I think just being aware of that has helped me minimize the the disconnection or maybe just be more um, understanding in those moments. So instead of you know, the kid who maybe like my oldest is definitely like the opposite of a DFK. Like I can go at a problem head on and just be like, listen, you need to cool off about this. We need to figure this out. This is how we're going to do it. Like, boom, like head on. But I feel like with a DFK, it's first line is minimize the emotional damage of any given situation. So how can I let him know how good and loved he is above trying to solve the problem. And I'm not saying that I don't want that, you know, I I don't want my kid who isn't a DFK to feel that. Of course I do, but it's just a more pertinent part of any problem with a DFK, I think, is to hold space for them to feel overwhelmed, to feel frustrated, to know that you're present and connecting over solving the problems. Because I'm pretty sure that most of the time with the FKs, they, they know I shouldn't have thrown this or I'm in their rational mind. I'm being crazy about this sock or whatever, but I just want to be supported in my emotions. So that would be my takeaway is if you're getting in these situations with your kid who's highly sensitive, how can you be there with them and support their emotional feelings instead of trying to solve the problem first, which is hard as an adult because we just want to get on a thing, get the shoes on. But <laughs> but I think it will build a resiliency in them over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like there is so much. She Again, she has an entire chapter about um, – deeply feeling kids. And I feel like all of her stuff in there is so, so, so good. And again, I think everything that we've mentioned up until now is so within the realm of like normalcy for any kid. And I think the deeply feeling kids, 
because like like Felicia said at the beginning, it's like everyone who has a two year old is like, oh no, like I do have one because that's how they they are like that. But um, but I think yeah, when Doctor Becky talks about this, there is kind of like another level of it, and I think especially as kids get older, you see that a little bit more. And so if you are feeling that, again, I think that this whole chapter, I mean, again, the whole book's incredible, but that chapter, she just has so many really great insights and concrete tips for how to how to handle it and how to navigate it in a really healthy way, both for you and for your kid. So, And, and something that she says that's just, to me, kind of encapsulates this entire concept is that for a deeply feeling kid, their core fear is that their feelings are going to overwhelm other people because they're overwhelming them. So their worry is that we can't handle it. You know what I mean? And so I really love that concept because she says to sit on the bench with them. Like we're showing them you can be overwhelmed by your feelings and I'm still going to be here. So it's okay to feel that way. And like I give you permission to be yourself as you learn how to regulate. And this is, again, a beautiful time to separate jobs guys a kid's job is to be themselves our job is to set boundaries and hold them and our job also specifically with emotional regulation and resilience our job is to model it so I think a lot of times we feel the responsibility to require that our children behave outwardly the exact way we want them to behave but we're forgetting that our power comes through our modeling So I guess what I'm saying here is I'm taking you parents off the hook for making we worry that when our kid loses it because they can't tie their shoe correctly in first grade, we think that that means they're going to turn into people who fly off the handle at any moment. But what I'm saying is the beautiful thing about this is we are teaching them how to regulate by us regulating. Like that's the most important part of this entire ingredient for me is they're literally learning and I mean, there's actually cool neuroscience behind this. Kids, when they feel off balance, when they feel, oh, I actually just heard a therapist say this the other day. Um, when, when our kids' nervous systems are overwhelmed, what they do, what they are designed to do is to connect to an adult who can regulate theirs and they like tap in to the way we're doing it, right? So this is just a liberating concept because our job is just to literally we're showing them, we're showing them how to emotionally regulate by the way we handle it. So again, and again, when we lose it, we apologize and we make repairs, but I'm just saying this is a beautiful time to remember that not only is that the core fear of deeply feeling kids, but really that's the core fear of all children is that they are going to be something that their parents do not accept. So by us showing our kids over and over and over, our job is to hold the boundary. Your job is to feel your feeling about it. My job is to still love you. Your job is to be yourself and learn how to emotionally regulate because I'm modeling how to do it. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. To me, that's this beautiful concept that we can then we can have these children who don't have to reparent themselves in adults in therapy saying, I was never safe to be myself. They can say, you know what? I was a sensitive kid and my mom helped me learn how to feel my own feelings so that I can regulate them and I don't have to lose it all the time. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's the beautiful thing is there is no feeling that's too big if we're able, if we learn how to process our own emotions, then it's okay. There is no such thing as a feeling that's too big because we can process it. So anyway, I like it because she says that's the core fear of deeply feeling kids, but really I think that's the core fear of all children, all humans. We just want to be accepted. We just want to be seen for who we are and have permission. And I know so many adults who, I mean, in their forties finally give themselves permission 
to embrace their nature. I mean, I know, okay, I know I have one friend who's a really reserved, I'm not going to use the word shy. She's very reserved, very introverted. And she is almost 40. And she's like, I just am barely learning to accept that that's part of my nature. Like I'm just learning how not to shame myself for that, to give myself mm-hmm. permission in a social setting just to observe. She's like, I used to just observe, but I feel bad about it the whole time. Like I should be the funny person in the center because that's what that looks so fun. That's better. And she's like, I am just learning how to, I can now enjoy the party because I'm just observing and not beating myself up about just observing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But she's almost 40 and she's just giving herself permission to do that. Imagine if as a parent, we could give our children the permission to, you know what, you can enjoy this time of the park under the tree, playing with the grass or jumping like a crazy person on the monkey bars. And I accept you either way because they're going to mm-hmm. do that either way. It's just one way they're going to feel bad like there's something wrong with them. And one way they're just going, it just sets you up for this. I just feel like as adults, a lot of times we have to do that ourselves. And we have the opportunity as parents to just give our kids that gift from the start. Doesn't that sound glorious? Save them a couple decades. Mm-hmm. Of it's just great. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, I love the stuff. I love the stuff that she says in this book. I, I mean, I would highly recommend this. This is now in my top five, I would say, parenting books that I recommend. And for me, the practical of today is just the giving permission kids to be who they are. She has the acronym AVP, Acknowledge, Validate, Permit. We see their feelings. We acknowledge them. That doesn't mean we still hold our boundary, of course, on whatever it is. But And then we model. We model what it looks like to repair. We model what it looks like to process our own emotions. That, for me, is like the big practical takeaway from this book. Yeah, I I would say if, you know, top five parenting books of all-encompassing, all the things, I feel like if you're like, what am I doing with parenting? I'm so confused. I need like a navigation system. I would definitely recommend this book. It's amazing. And to follow up with with what Terilyn said, this this doesn't mean permitting behaviors. You're still doing your job, but it's allowing your child to um, have their emotions and and be themselves. And that's what we all want for ourselves. <laughs> and recognizing, honestly, one of my and we've talked about this line now for three episodes. But you're a good kid having a hard time. That we can use that same thing on us as adults. For me, this is a huge takeaway. I have found myself telling myself since reading this book, I'm with my kids. I'm being frustrated. I even like use a frustrated tone of voice. And after I'll say, you're a good mom having a hard time. <laughs> you know what I mean? We can use that on ourselves. I'm a good person having a hard time right now. Just like you're a good kid who just flipped out and yelled or hit your brother or whatever. You're a good kid having a hard time. I'm a good person having a hard time too. So the beautiful thing about this whole concept of good inside is that this doesn't just apply to our kids. This applies to us as well. And I have really loved, that's probably been my favorite takeaway line of the whole book. You're a good kid having a hard time. I'm a good person having a hard time. And I'm going to give myself that same thing because none of us are perfect guys. None of us are. We're all good inside. You guys are all listening to this podcast because you are good parents. So all of you like soak that in. You're good parents. You're good people. And good people make mistakes and we repair and we keep trying. And that's what we do. So I love that message that when we look at other people and ourselves as somebody who's good, who makes mistakes, it's way different than looking at ourselves 
and other people like there's something just inherently deeply shameful and wrong about us you know i love it all right well thanks for joining us this three-part series we will link the other two parts if you want to go back and listen to those all right let's find the magic Brown cows. <laughs> 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 <laughs>